Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In this week's episode, Richard and I contrast biblical and worldly shame, reflecting on the central role that shame plays in the biblical tradition and the various responses to shame portrayed in the characters of Matthew's Gospel. In the Bible and in life, human shame can lead to alienation, mistreatment of those who are weaker, and in many cases, expiation by means of violence or suicide. Exploring these themes, our discussion sheds light on how biblical shame under minds these outcomes by redefining the object of our shame's loyalty. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to the 16th episode of the Bible as Literature podcast. In today's episode, we'd like to talk about an issue that is sometimes difficult in a modern ecclesial setting, and that is the question of shame. Shame is a function in Scripture that is absolutely essential, not only for understanding what's happening in the story, but for understanding and actually really living the change that the story wants to produce in you in your daily life. And very often, you know, when I'm preaching and I talk about the shame of the cross or the shame that one should feel because of certain behaviors in the context of scripture, it raises people's hackles. I mean, they get very concerned because shame has very negative connotations in modern psychology and in popular culture. So I thought today it would be great to talk to Dr. Benton about what shame is from a scriptural perspective and maybe talk about some textual examples to help tease out how it's meant to function and why it's so essential. Right. Scripture doesn't use the same terminology for shame as we have in the English language. So just to start out, when I'm understanding shame, it's a function of obedience and duty. And that's why I think shame has a bit different connotation in English, because in American context, we don't talk about duty and obedience in the same way. They're kind of have a more tenuous position in our society. I think that shame is the feeling that you've disappointed an authority figure or made an authority look bad because of your disobedience. Just to be clear, you haven't made yourself look bad. You've made someone in authority look bad. That's a very interesting distinction. Say something about that. So, for example, after the Columbine shooting, there was a shame that was brought on the family. Now, it's not the shame that we read about from medieval texts or something like that, but the actions of the children were such that the guilt that was placed on the parents, even though they did not act in this way, was brought upon them. And so there was a shame on this family to such an extent that they had to sell their house and leave the neighborhood. So that's that's interesting because I think in our American culture, people go to great lengths to minimize or eliminate shame, yet it still remains abundantly intuitive that there is accountability at the highest levels of authority for the behavior of those who fall under their scope of responsibility. Right. And the question of whether they should or shouldn't have felt shame this particular family, that's a different question because the fact was they did feel shame and they left the neighborhood and probably in their interactions with other people in the neighborhood, this was something that was particularly difficult and it was the shame that the children brought upon the family. And this sounds funny to be talking about an American context, but I think the concept still functions, but we call it something different or we talk about it in slightly different terms. But the reason why I think it's important for us to understand shame and understand that it has to do with what we see as the authority. If we look at the book of the 12, especially the book of Hosea, 
we see that the Lord is upset with the people because of their lack of loyalty. Their love is like the dew in the morning. It disappears as soon as the sun comes up. This is from Hosea. And the image of this is a prostitute. A prostitute is the most disloyal person possible because they have no loyalty to family or to husband or to anyone. They do their own thing. It's a bit like a person in our current historical context who can very easily dismiss family relationships or make quick and easy changes in their friendly relationships with others for convenience. Right. You're free. You don't feel shame. I think this is what, for example, someone from Latin America or Africa or the Middle East means when they say Americans have no shame. They can easily switch loyalties and they feel di- unaccountable. They discount loyalties and they feel no sense of duty. And I think this is a person who has no shame. And for someone who's used to loyalty and to duty, someone who doesn't have loyalty or talks about the importance of self-determination looks like someone who can't be trusted. Right. Because you can't predict how they're going to fall. Even in a Somali context where you belong to this or that clan, you might hate that other clan, but at least you know if an issue comes up, you know where they're going to fall. Because of their loyalty, they do not want to bring shame upon them or their family, so you know how they're going to have to fall. So at least it functions in the society as an ordering mechanism so people can understand where other people are and where they're going in a societal matrix. It's just interesting, and this is a side note. I don't want to take away from the main thread, but I think that's why so many images immigrants from those cultures feel this betrayal and frustration when dealing with Americans because they're just operating on a different set of principles about what our obligations are to each other as human beings. Right. And so what I think is interesting and still coming off of Holy Week, it's funny how now in the midst of Pascha, we keep talking about Holy Week and the passion, but I guess that's how it goes. I was looking again at Matthew 26 and Matthew 27, and I was looking at the way that Peter and Judas reacted to the crucifixion. Because in the Roman Empire, you can kill people in multiple ways. You can chop off their head. You can have them be eaten by a lion. But if you want to bring shame upon them and upon everyone connected with them, you crucify them. You put them up in front of the path leading to town on the main road, and it's a shame upon them. Hmm. Because it's saved for the worst, most disobedient, criminals, the ones who show themselves completely disloyal to the authority. So you put them there on the cross, and then as people come in, they see you can either be glorified as Caesar is glorified, or you can be shamed with those who look lightly upon Caesar, who don't really feel the weight of his glory. And so I think that the cross then is a test, because Jesus has been glorifying his father throughout his life and shaming Caesar throughout his life. And because Caesar is the law of the land, he's crucified and this shame is brought. So what happens when you look upon Jesus as he's crucified, you have a choice. You can identify with the Roman Empire and the Roman authority and say, this is shame. This man has been shamed. If I'm associated with him, then in the eyes of the people, his shame comes upon me. If I'm with him and I don't care what the people say, then I'm glorified because of his glory, not because of something I did, but because I'm associated with him and have dedicated myself and my loyalty to him, then I'm glorified in the eyes of God. So we have two authorities. You can either be glorified in the eyes of Caesar or glorified in the eyes of God. And this is your choice. So Peter demonstrates this. So Peter 
comes to the trial, but he's waiting outside. And they say, aren't you one of his people in Matthew 26? And he says, no, 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 I'm not. He says, are you sure? Because it seems like, no, 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 I'm not. Okay, why is he doing this? Because his teacher is being shamed. So his natural human inclination is to avoid that shame and to look good in the eyes of the people, right? So he says, no, 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 I'm not associated with him. But then once he hears the cock crow according to the prediction that Jesus laid out, he realizes that what his teacher taught him is the truth. So once he realized that what his teacher taught him was the truth and that he's the true teacher, he realizes, I was disloyal to my teacher. Therefore, I feel shame. Therefore, I weep. I weep for my shame. Now, it wasn't enough to change Peter because he didn't show up at the crucifixion either, but that's another story. But what's interesting is Judas goes through the same process. Judas is ashamed by Jesus because he sees that the shame on Jesus is going to bring shame upon the Jewish people, and then therefore they're not going to be able to be glorified in the eyes of the Romans. In a, in a worldly way, right? There's always, in a worldly this, way, there's always yeah. this tension with the Pauline school, just as you have today in modern Israel-Palestine, people calling for revolution and jihad against injustice. You had the same tension in late antiquity. I think the Pauline school represents a different stand taken in the Jewish community in late antiquity. There's a, there's a nonviolent path. So definitely this question of shame and glory has everything to do with violence and nonviolence. It does have a lot to do with violence and nonviolence. That's important too because the glory of the Roman Empire, the glory of Caesar, is his army. When Jesus goes to be crucified, he says, I could bring in my own army. But he doesn't. But he doesn't. This is important. He doesn't. Because if he were to bring his own army in, he would defeat them and be glorified in the eyes of Caesar. Then we're back to square one. We're back to square one. Because what he, Jesus does in that case, if he were to call in the heavenly hosts, he would validate the authority of Caesar. And then that would be a problem because he cannot. He has to reject it. That's why crucifixion is the only way that he can be glorified because it has to be the most shameful way to be portrayed in the eyes of a Roman. And this is the dilemma that Peter is in. This is the dilemma that Judas is in. Judas, once he realizes that he betrayed his teacher, that he betrayed Jesus, he had to kill himself. This is the way you dispatch of shame in the Roman Empire. You would kill yourself. And to modern ears, this sounds very strange. It's, it's interesting. In reading the book Shame by Salman Rushdie, he talks about when he was growing up in England, a story about a Pakistani girl who was killed by her father in an honor killing. Salman Rushdie, who's obviously not aligned with the fundamentalists, says, as a Pakistani, I have to say, I understood what the father was going through. I understood that he loved his child, but also that this was the only way to expunge the shame. So even for me and all of my studies, I'm still having to make a big leap with my imagination to understand this because this is such a foreign concept to us that Judas in his betrayal and in his disloyalty, the only way to save himself the shame is to kill himself. It's almost like a Japanese motif. I mean, it's not, but the human function of dealing with shame through suicide obviously manifests itself in Asian culture. This is part of Japanese culture. This is part of Pakistani culture. This is part of Roman culture. Right. There's something Going, there's something there. There's something at work here. There's something human about that. And yes. I think that that's important for us as Americans to understand that we are the exception and that prevents us from understanding. But exactly we're not the exception in the sense that suicide is still driven by shame. It's a misplaced shame because our loyalties are so confused in our culture, whether loyalties to ourselves or to materialism or whatever. But still, suicide happens because of shame. People move out of communities because of shame. People abuse each other or themselves because of shame. 
game. So I don't think we're as exceptional as we like to imagine we are in the rhetoric of our presidents. Right. And it's interesting because the one person that we see who switches his loyalties is the centurion at the crucifixion. And now he says, this is the son of God. Which is amazing. This is, this is amazing because he's the only one who does it. Peter feels bad, but doesn't quite change his loyalties. Judas feels bad, but he still has to save face in front of the Romans, not in front of God. When he kills himself, he expunges his guilt in the Roman way, Mm -hmm. not in the divine way. Now, what's interesting is there's another layer of shame that happens in scripture, and that's that when the worldly authority imposes upon you, you will take advantage of the weak and take advantage of whatever you can in order to make the authority look good. That's why in corporate America, people are willing to step over each other, step on each other, walk through each other in order to get the favors of the top. This has not changed from the Mediterranean world to today. The modern metropolis and skyscrapers, they're no different than castles in the Middle Ages. Everything functions the same way. Father Paul Tarazi has often said that the kingly function is preserved in public institutions in the role of the Supreme Court. I would suggest that in the private sector, the kingly function is maintained in the person of the CEO. Right. And the employees worship the CEO functionally. Never mind lip service we give to how modern we are and civil liberties. I mean, the function of king is still there. Well, and don't forget that even in in the English language, what do we call the most powerful CEOs in the world? Kingmakers. They're the ones who decide with their money who is going to be the leader in in politics. So I think they have a very important uh, position that way. So in scripture, that's how you would function. You know, for example, when David shows honor to Saul, he goes and he brings the foreskins of the Philistines. He commits violence on behalf of the king in order to bring glory to the king and to bring glory on himself. This is how it functions. But with the Lord, what's interesting is that his Torah teaches us that the way you bring him glory, you lift up those who are shamed, those who are without food and without clothing and who need help. This is Matthew 25, right before this passage where Peter denies Jesus. But when you lift up those who are shamed, it creates discordance. It creates discomfort. In, for example, the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of Matthew, you have this dynamic where people are either heckling Jesus come down from the cross or rushing to make sure he's dead so that they can take him down from the cross. It's so overt in Mark, the way we hear over and over again, they check to make sure he was dead. Was he dead? He was really dead. He was dead. So let's take him down and hide him away in a tomb made out of stone because it's too uncomfortable for us to look at his shame publicly. When the gospel lifts up Mary Magdalene and everyone who's concerned about propriety becomes immediately uncomfortable with the idea of a prostitute in the midst of the church, that is, I think, the narrative working to undermine our sensibilities and our loyalties with respect to shame to reorient us to feel ashamed about the right things and that is so essential that's exactly right scripture is using shame to a correct end it's it by reformatting what makes us feel ashamed do you feel ashamed that you don't have a super high-powered corporate job or do you feel ashamed when the media ridicules vulnerable women repeatedly you know like you see on some of these hollywood reporting sites but it's mainstream press also it's also associated press and reuters where they'll take someone like britney spears 
and treat her like the village prostitute in 1 Corinthians, and they behave no differently than the abusive Roman patricians who would improve their status as the senior authority by ridiculing the weak. No, I mean, I had this happen to me. One of my early jobs and I was working in an office and one of my friends was making fun of me. He says, oh, what are you doing there? You're, you're distributing the mail or what are you doing? And I was upset. Where do you get off comparing me with one of the male people? Why did I say this? Why did I have the reaction I did? Because I was ashamed. He shamed me. Then what did I do? I went back and tried to make him feel shamed for what he said to me. This is incorrect because according to the gospel, I am supposed to identify with the weakest. So in the eyes of the world, identifying me with the male guy is a shame. According to scripture, identifying me with a male guy is an honor. And this is interesting because you know I'm working on Galatians and we've talked about this. I think that this discussion and understanding shame in this light is essential to understanding what's going on when Paul is talking about the function of the law versus the function of grace. Because in the Torah, God gives you instruction and he gives you instruction to an extreme. So for example, let's say that the law calls for the respect of the neighbor, but you really are self-righteous about your ability to show respect toward the neighbor. And so the law will then emphasize with excruciating detail the lengths to which you should go to show respect in a cultic setting in the temple. But this nth degree emphasis on how you show cultic respect ultimately refers back to your inability to show respect to the neighbor because the law is so detailed you can't achieve it. And the function then of the law is to make you feel ashamed so that it would reorient you and change your attitude towards your neighbor. I think what Paul is saying in Galatians to the Jews, you, because you were able to tithe mint and cumin according to the nth degree of the letter of the law, believed yourself righteous, which actually shows that your reference for what is shameful and what is not shameful is incorrect. Whereas the Gentile manifest in your example of the centurion recognizes their accountability for the death of Jesus. And so therefore they feel shame that they persecuted the weak. You're using the Torah to persecute the weak. They're feeling shame that they persecuted Jesus. And what Paul is saying is that in the death of Jesus, the shame that was intended by the instruction of the Torah is achieved for the Gentiles without them ever having to tithe mint and cumin. And this is so essential. Because once you understand this, you realize that all of the arguments about law and grace since the Reformation are misguided, entirely misguided. And the arguments about law and grace and the creeds and the theologies that spring forth from those arguments is the manifestation and the reseeding of the same lack of shame that was a problem for Judaism in late antiquity when the Pauline school was fighting against violence and hubris in ancient Palestine. If you're still fighting for that hubris, it means your values have not been reoriented. Absolutely. It's and, the key. And, it's this the is, key. and this is what you find in the prophets. One of the funniest dynamic I find in scripture is the excruciating detail of how to fulfill the cultic commandments, like you were mentioning. Excruciating detail. And then in Hosea, with a wave of his hand, the Lord says, no, I didn't want you to do those things. Why? Because I wanted you to show mercy and compassion and justice. Okay, well then why did, why did you show all those things? You showed us how we were supposed to do all these different cultic commands, yet you want us to be kind. Why is this? Why did God waste his time? And why do we waste our time reading over and over and over and copying over and over again this really boring part of the Bible? I think the answer, and this is you know me and my movie references, I think the answer is in the first Karate Kid film. 
I think in that beautiful scene where he has this young boy do seemingly mindless, repetitious acts over and over and over again in service of a greater purpose, I think it's a paradigm in the apprentice-disciple relationship. And I think learning scripture is all about being apprenticed. It's not about studying it in the laboratory. And I think that's how the Torah apprentices us. Wax on, wax off. But I want to learn karate. No, I want you to wax my floor. What does waxing the floor have to do with karate? It's none of your business. You're the disciple. We've lost that spirit. We've lost that ethos entirely. Right. I mean, We're also self-righteous. We want the teacher to explain himself. Yeah, that's the ironic thing is we want the teacher to explain himself because we don't understand what he's saying. And he's invalid because he doesn't make sense. He's valid because he doesn't make sense because you're the student. Exactly. I mean, wait, 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 but please submit your reviews at the end of the semester. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, I mean, what you're saying about it being apprenticed, because of the excruciating detail of Torah, if you're going to fulfill the cult, you better be following Torah very, very carefully. Right. Okay, well, what about after the, when he says, you know, make sure you're taking care of your neighbor? Why did you stop paying attention so closely? Because the point is not, okay, I've got down Exodus, but, you know, I'll do Leviticus when I feel like it. In Byzantine rubrics, when you drop the bread of the Eucharist or you drop the wine on the floor, there is a service for atonement for this grievous mistake. You have to be very particular how you address the fact that the priest dropped the gifts on the floor or wherever. But the function of that service is ultimately not about the gifts that fell on the floor because the Lord Jesus Christ, who was established in power and glory for all time at the right hand of God the Father, is not going to tremble because an Orthodox priest dropped the gifts. The function of the service is to remind you of the shame that you should feel for how you treat the weaker brother. Jesus in the liturgy is the abused. Now, if you go through that whole ritual and you walk out going like this, oh yeah, we're all set. We were very correct according to rubrics and we didn't desecrate the Eucharist, but then you spit on your neighbor, what's the point? This is what Paul is you saying. Don't, you don't even have to spit on your neighbor. If you go out of that service saying, now we're correct, you did the rubrics, the rubrics included saying these prayers and the prayers themselves told you you're not correct. So how do you do the service and come out saying you're correct? Exactly. This is shameless behavior because you act like you are dedicated to God and to the service on behalf of God, but in fact, you take care of the lighter measures, the mint and the rue of you know prostrating and wearing the right clothing and standing in the right place. But the weightier matters of the destruction of your ego, that part is conveniently left out as soon as you're done with the service and you get sure. your bagel or whatever. Exactly. And let's be clear, I'm not saying that there's something wrong with the service. I really want to be clear for our listeners. I'm saying there's something wrong with the way people hear the service and the way people understand their respect for the sacramental function, however it's manifest liturgically. Your respect for sacramental function has to be about respect for the weaker brother. Because if it's not, if it's respect for the sacramental function per se, I'm not sure that your loyalty is toward the one whose throne will not falter because you've fallen short of earthly glory. Right. And according to scripture, if this is your reaction, then you should feel shame before the Lord because 
you made him look bad because you are claiming to be one of, uh, actually he's claimed you as one of his children in the baptism. This is why you're sealed. You know, I like the image of the seal when you're baptized, the seal, because what is the seal? The seal is when you have a, a jar in the ancient Near East, you put a seal on there. Mm. And that means whatever is in here belongs to him. It says for the king, it's stamped on the top of the thing. You open it up, whatever's in there belongs to the king. So he says, okay, this was sealed by the Holy Spirit. If you open it up and there's nothing in there or a bunch of junk, then you've made a mockery of the Lord. That's the function of the seal. It's a stamp of ownership. The very, stamp of ownership belongs clearly. to me. So he says, okay, so now you belong to him. You went and you did this service. You stood in the right place. You sang the right note, but the words you were singing went in one ear and out the other. Now you think you're something. By doing that, you have brought shame upon yourself by bringing shame upon your master, the Lord, by acting as if his teaching is useless. This is the problem that the anti-idolatry school has with human achievement and human strength. When your reference for shame is worldly, you try to overcome or cast aside shame by building yourself up through ritual, through the shaming of others, through abuse of any kind. Joining the right church. Joining the right church, yeah. But when your reference is not worldly, when your reference is scriptural, you realize that it's actually about losing and about making yourself smaller and about lifting up those who've been shamed by those who are worldly. By identifying with those who have been shamed by the world. Identifying with those who have been shamed by the world. This has been a great conversation. And I think for those who are hesitant about what I would call the medicinal imperative of scriptural shame, those who are hesitant because of all the negative connotations about shame in our culture, remember that scriptural shame is an antidote to the very problems that you're struggling with, the abuse of women, the problem of suicide, the inappropriate treatment of victims of crimes of abuse, the inappropriate treatment of people who are trying to reform their life after having been abusers. All these things are actually put in a context under scripture where the burden on their shoulders is lessened, not increased, but it is lessened at the expense of the assembly, which is put to shame by the gospel. All right. Thanks a lot, Doctor. Thank you very much. Really, really learned a lot from this conversation yeah, and clarified a few points. Take care. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.